do we see at Groundswell this year, the 26th and 27th of June, close to London, UK? Many friends of the podcast will be there. John Kempf, Abby Rose, Benedict Bozo, Henry Dimbleby, Claire Hill, Russ Carrington, Andy Cato, Tim Coates, and many, many more. See you there. You're going to listen to an interview with Eric Jackson of Pipeline Foods, where we are discussing large-scale conversion of land to organic farming. What holds farmers back while the demand is growing so rapidly? Eric could have retired, but decided to dive into regenerative agriculture and get as many acres as possible on the journey to be a positive force instead of a negative one. Learn how he built an organization of over 50 people in 18 months, projected to do 150 million in sales this year. Enjoy! Welcome to another episode of Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered, a podcast show where I talk to the pioneers in the regenerative food and agriculture space to learn more on how to put our money to work to regenerate soil, people, local communities and ecosystems while making an appropriate and fair return. Why my focus on soil and regeneration? Because so many of the pressing issues we face today have their roots in how we treat our land, grow our food and what we eat. And it's time that we as investors, big and small and consumers, start paying much more attention to the dirt slash soil underneath our feet. Before we get started, I've been recording these interviews next to my day job and I will definitely continue to do so and release about an episode a month. But at the same time, I would love to take this further, share more interviews. There are many more stories to share on investing in regenerative food and agriculture. More depth, improve the quality, maybe even doing some video series. So I started a Patreon community, which makes it easy to support creators like myself. If these podcasts have been of value to you, and if you have the means, I invite you to support me and make this happen. For more information, please find the link to my Patreon account in the description below. And now, without further ado, the interview. Enjoy! So welcome to Investing in Regenerative Agriculture, Investing as if the Planet Mattered. I'm Kun Vasaya, your host, and today I'm talking to Eric Jackson, the CEO of Pipeline Foods, working to accelerate the availability of organic, non-GMO, regenerative-grown food to the market by working together with the whole value chain. I have a lot of questions around how they put farmers first and what regenerative agriculture means to them. So let's not lose time and dive straight in. Welcome, Eric. Hi, very nice to be here. So to start with a personal question, which I always love, what brings you to building soil, regenerative agriculture, and, and using agriculture as a, as a force for good? Very, very big question, I know. Yeah, well, uh, like many of folks my age um, who've been in agriculture for, for a career, when we started in the business, in my case, 35 years ago, we were never given any information and it really wasn't a topic of conversation about how agriculture and sustainability work could work together. Um, in fact, sustainability had yet to be sort of raised as a business proposition or as a mandate by consumers. So you go through your career in the conventional space, and in my case, I had the opportunity to retire in 2007, and I took that opportunity to move out of uh, the direct involvement in the agricultural trading business and get into the carbon sequestration business uh, through the Chicago Climate Exchange and the programs around um, uh, cover cropping and uh, grasslands, minimum tillage programs. And it was really through that the two years or so that I was doing that business that I started to connect some dots that I didn't really uh, even think about prior to that. So 
this would be now uh, almost 12 years ago, um, when we started taking a look at, at carbon sequestration and the possibilities for using agriculture as a carbon sink, you know, the forest projects had, had been already been used for quite a while, but, but agriculture, particularly production agriculture, uh, as a carbon sink was something that was uh, relatively new uh, across the, uh, even across the sustainability community at that point in time. And I, I you know, I've, I've got a commercial mindset. I'm not, I'm not really a scientific uh, person, um, but I do have a set of personal values that I found that were in alignment with this idea of creating food in a way that also had these secondary and tertiary environmental benefits primarily. Um, there's some social benefits as well, but I was, you know, I, I really got hooked on this notion of, of linking environmental outcomes to food production. And do you remember when, if there was a light bulb moment or a farmer you visited when with your traditional agriculture background, you suddenly saw like, wait a minute, it could not just be less bad, but actually it could be could be more positive effects as well. Was there a specific moment, or was it more at, at like those two years, like you mentioned before? Yeah, it was it was it was mostly a slow process. But there were times when I was out in fields in in uh, you know these enormous fields out in the north northern part of the of the U.S. And you know I grew up in Illinois where everything was black dirt, and and the, the, you know the farmers prided themselves on how on how clean their fields were before they planted them, how clean their fields were during the season through the use of pesticides and herbicides. And it, it seemed natural to me, of course, if a clean system is a, you know, a clean looking system must be a better system. And then I went to these projects in, in North Dakota and, and Montana and Wyoming, and I started seeing a different type of agriculture. Uh, a very messy one, yeah. Uh, much more messy. This was this was actually not organic that I was looking at at that point in time. But it was it was a uh, this idea of uh, of using um, nature as part of the cycle instead of fighting nature in between the times when we want to use the when we want to use the land to grow a crop and uh, you know the balance of the year. So you have the fallow period post harvest and using cover cropping uh, during that post harvest period. The dirt was healthier, you know, and this was the description of the growers telling me that they, they noticed that their dirt was getting better as they were using cover crops. Um, the idea of using uh, minimum tillage uh, in, in concert with nature as opposed to fighting, um, fighting nature every step of the way during the growing season was producing uh, every bit as much yield for these guys as, um, as a conventional and their cost structure was much lower because they weren't using, they weren't having to buy all these, all these inputs. Um, so that was, that was sort of a, that was an aha moment for me because I, 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 I was a believer at that point in time that you had to fertilize and you had to, you had to hammer the earth with things to keep it in check uh, so that we could do what we wanted to do during, during the brief growing season, at least in the, in the Northern hemisphere. Um, but I would say mostly it was an accretive process. You know, it was, learning mostly through stories by listening to growers talk about what they were doing and, and changes that they saw multi-generational farms, you know, that, that would do something uh, for a long period of time, the same year after year. Uh, and then they recognized that some of the things that their grandfather used to do was actually better. Um, but, you know, they, they had to go through a change in a the mindset. They farmers as, as a rule, I would say, have to learn by doing and, 
they have to be taught through lessons on their own on their own land. Uh, but it was really more of a, a, an accumulated process of listening to these growers as they went through different changes, tried different things, very experimental, um, to try to, uh, you know, at the very least, earn environmental credits for what they were doing. But then they noticed something good was really happening, so it became more than a monetary uh, endeavor and became, uh, you know, more of a missional type endeavor for many of these growers. So I really learned from the farmers um, the benefits, the, the much broader set of benefits of, of doing things, uh, I would say, in the non-conventional way. And and then when you, when basically the market of, of compensation didn't didn't really take off in, in the U.S. or North America, what, what made you, I mean, that for, sort of forced you to switch, but you could still retire, uh, what made you yeah. found and start Pipeline Foods? Well, there's actually a chapter in between, so... Ah. I, I, so from 07 to 09, 2007 to 2009, I was involved in the carbon sequestration projects. And then I, I took a, a, another sort of detour and I got involved in the software business. And the idea was to build a business software platform for large scale farmers, part of which was to give them better control over their, over the economics of their business. And part of it was to give them more visibility into how sustainability practices, um, you know, impacted their bottom line. And then to give them the opportunity through the, through the use of data to be able to participate in sustainability programs, whether they were uh, driven by their buyers or whether they were driven by governmental or non-GM or uh, NGO uh, initiatives, either regulatory or non-regulatory. Uh, so the, the the thing I was connecting in my head at that point was the data was critical to respond to market forces, uh, some of which would be regulatory in nature, mostly around water quality, and some of them would be market-based in nature, mostly around um, addressing interests coming from the consumer side in terms of knowing where your food came from and the practices used to raise that food. So I spent eight years in the software industry building that platform, which is called Conservice, and that, that's still a going business. And that was, that was quite exciting because I, I learned something new again uh, that I, I, I didn't know really much about technology before I got into that business, and I was the agricultural expert in, in, on the team, and I started to learn a lot about how technology could play a positive role um, you know, through the use of data management in terms of exposing best practices as well as connecting farmers to uh, market opportunities and or giving them uh, a response to uh, regulatory uh, pressure from their environment. So that was that was a long intermediate chapter of, of eight years and but it was really through that process then again I spent I spent virtually all of that eight years mostly out in the field with growers and started seeing a whole wide variety of different types of growing schemes and um, you know, started bumping in more and more to uh, folks that were at least diversified into into uh, organic row crop production. And uh, so my education uh, of, of production agriculture, different types of production agriculture continued during those software years. So then I got bored again. <laughs> There's a common theme here. When I get bored, I get dangerous. I didn't, I didn't want to say it. <laughs> so in 2015, Late 2015, I started sort of dreaming about uh, maybe how to get more deeply involved in 
specifically in, in the organic space, um, which I would say, we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but organic is one of the ways in which regenerative agriculture might be expressed. Um, I was looking at the, at the marketplace and watching the growth in the, in the industry, um, you know, double digit growth year over year for many, many years. And again, with my commercial hat on, I was wondering what had been, what was being done in terms of the infrastructure and the supply yeah. or the supply, right? So the, the, the midstream between the farmer and the consumer, there's a lot of steps that happen. And I, I, I was fascinated to try to figure out and see if that, if that infrastructure had been keeping up with, you know, with the, with the whole marketplace. And I found out that it hadn't, that it was really an underinvested space. Uh, I'm talking about grain elevators, grain processing, feed manufacturing, uh, grain processing for uh, various types of foodstuffs, food ingredients. Um, and really that's a critical link because neither, neither the demand side or the supply side can function without that, without that midstream. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe my contribution to this effort is to develop the midstream so that um, both sides of this of, of the pipe, the pipeline, there's a name, that's where it came from, um, both sides of the, of the pipe can benefit if the pipe is built in such a way that it, it honors the desires on the demand side and honors the desires on the supply side. So this notion of building a pipe, the most efficient uh, means by which to get product from A to B, um, started coming in, into view, and uh, I started putting a team together in early 16 to explore this a little bit more, and we spent about six months doing some research and, and developing the thesis more clearly, and then I stepped out into the capital markets to, to raise money because, you know, the midstream business is, is very asset-heavy, and it takes a lot of capital to, uh, to put the pieces together. So, you know, that's that's sort of the condensed version. I could go on for hours about how um, other aspects of it, but that's sort of the condensed version of how I came to form a Pipeline as a company. Do you want to learn how to invest? Or are you an entrepreneur and want to build companies in the regenerative food and agriculture space? Or do you work in big ag and big food and want to really move the needle? We have developed a new video course for you. Find out more on investinginregenerativeagriculture.com slash course or in the show notes description below. And, and now you have, I, th I counted on the website, over 50 people working with you. Um, and can you give the condensed version of what pipeline foods, obviously changing constantly, but what it is today, what's your focus on, what, what's your theory of change? Yeah, so again, consistent with the, with the initial thesis that somebody or somebodies had to take out their checkbook and start investing in the midstream so that the, um, the product uh, from the farm can reach the consumer. And if, if you don't have that midstream in place, then neither side gets to do as well as they could. So today, uh, after not quite 18 months in business, uh, we have uh, a headquarters here in Minneapolis. We have a team in Canada that manages our Canadian program. We have a team in Buenos Aires that manages our South American program. And we've created a, a partnership with a like-minded group out of Europe that gives us a, a global program. Uh, in terms of being able to work directly with growers today in about 20 countries uh, to be able to, um, you know, a, number one, get them the best price possible 
for the products they're producing, and then on the other side, working with consumer groups, uh, consumer companies, you know, people that put branded product on the food shelf, um, to take their sustainability programs and be able to express those back to the farmers, um, so that those farmers who choose to participate in those programs uh, sort of have a translator uh, to get them there, because the the food companies have have a challenge in terms of the their sustainability programs and how the promises they've made to their stakeholders and, and to their customers. Um, most food companies don't directly touch the farm, uh, and most midstream groups that are sitting in the same position in the universe as Pipeline don't have an interest in making that connection. Uh, they they operate in a black box model where actually their their stock in trade is to not. The less you know, the more I, the the more I can exploit you. Yeah. No information shared. So we took the exact opposite approach and said, well, that's that's not what the consumer wants. We know that there are some farmers that would like to participate downstream and understand what the consumer wants, um, while the consumers want to participate upstream and understand how their food is grown. So we said, let's be completely transparent and create sort of a two-way telescope, uh, consistent with the uh, with the thesis of a pipe, I guess, um, and give both visibility to to each other uh, and and strengthen the food system in, in in a way that hasn't really been done at least at a commercial scale before. So again, today, like you said, we have we have some somewhere in the neighborhood of 50, uh, just over 50 people. Um, we have three grain four grain elevators. I'm sorry, two in two in Saskatchewan and two in North Dakota. We have a small oilseed crushing operation in Missouri. Um, we are exploring more elevators. We're exploring feed milling for animal feed for uh, the organic dairy sector in particular. Um, we're looking at uh, elevators and grain processing facilities in Argentina. And we, again, through our European partnership, we've got projects uh, in Kazakhstan, Uganda, uh, Malaysia, Uh, in various other areas around the world, all all follow the same trajectory where we say we have boots on the ground. So we are not simply buying and selling product, but we are actually actively working with the growers um, to try to help them improve uh, their opportunity as well as to give our customers assurance that the products that they receive are in fact from you know this particular farm or the or this particular region of farms. So it's a very intensive business. It does take more, it takes uh, you know more labor, more arms and legs than, than your traditional business. But uh, so far, the market signals are telling us that we're doing the right thing. And and in terms of a, a concrete example, let's say I'm a grain farmer. Um, maybe I'm already organic, or maybe I'm thinking about, and and I I knock on the door of of Pipeline Food. What what would be what would be our our journey? Yeah, so in the case, let's say that you do not today have any organic production, but you're, you've been dreaming about it. Um, the three challenges. I've seen my neighbors doing it and I, yeah. I want, I want it to. Right. Or, I would like my children to come back to the farm and then they don't want to at the moment. Yeah, that's what they, exactly. That's, it is very much about the next generation in many cases. Um, but there are three primary challenges for, for embarking on the journey. Um, and we've consistently uncovered these to the point that we're convinced that these are the three sort of hurdles that have to be overcome. Uh, one is economic uncertainty. There's a three-year period. For the U.S. organic program, there's a three-year transition period. So 
So you have to do. I think it's exactly the same here. Yeah. So you have to do three three times three hundred and sixty five days of uh, of agriculture that that includes no prohibited applications of materials. And so during that period of time, uh, there aren't very many market opportunities to get a a better price for your product. So you're essentially still selling into the conventional market, but you're doing everything different on your farm uh, as, as a farmer. And so the, normally during that transition period, you, you have some yield drag uh, as you're learning the new system and you don't have a better economic opportunity. So the first challenge is the, is the economic piece. And out of that, then, you know, your lenders, your traditional lenders may or may not uh, be willing to support that. So we put together a toolkit of third-party partners on the, on the from the banking side, we, we and we continue to uh, discover more and more bankers that are interested and willing to sponsor, if you will, this transitional period. To finance, I guess, yeah. right? It's transition exactly finance. transition yeah. finance. We also have put together uh, and continue to add to a portfolio of agronomic support tools. We ourselves are not agronomists. Uh, we do not pretend to be, but we do have. Um, one agroecologist on the team who is his primary job is to identify agronomic support organizations or individuals in various places that can be brought to bear in support of the grower who's who's embarking on this journey. And then the third piece is a long-term view of the market because it's one thing to get through the transition, but then there's still the question of you know where am I going to sell my organic product and what sort of prices are am I going to get for it and we so this is primary to our business um, we are able to put together uh, you know a framework that that uh, supports the post transition uh, world uh, now that you're now that you are organic and now that you are producing organic uh, then we can provide the market access um, through our day to day business model so putting all that together into into a package that we can sit down and talk to an aspiring organic farmer is, uh, you know, that, that would be the journey that we would, that we would embark on with you. Now, if you're, if you're existing organic, uh, a little different approach, um, we would, so the thing, the things that we look for with the existing organic growers, in addition to doing business with them here and now is to explore whether they're interested in expanding their opportunity, their, their acreage. Um, and oftentimes the answer is yes, but I don't want to, or I can't buy more land. So we are matching landowners with farmers who want to expand and essentially putting helping them put together long-term uh, arrangements, normally seven to 10 year arrangements um, that are sympathetic to the organic thesis in terms of the lease structure uh, and again, we stand there as the market maker for the product so that the landowner has confidence that the, that the farmer will have the means by which to pay them. Um, but then we accomplish, uh, you know, uh, there are landowners, increasingly there are landowners that are more and more concerned about how their land is, is, is managed. And so this is, symp- Luckily, yeah. this is sympathetic to their view as well. So. We look, with existing organic growers, we look to help them expand uh, by connecting them to landowners that have an interest in, in, in the organic um, regenerative sustainability thesis overall. 
but it's a lot of education on both sides because you know a lot of people know know the words but they don't really necessarily completely understand the meaning so we're we're teachers uh every day we're teachers out in the marketplace and and just to unpack that a bit because you you provide long-term agreements etc for for me that when i'm through that journey because I'm, i'm going to be organic to basically Uh, make sure I have offtake agreements, etc. I read somewhere you're buying the whole rotation because as an organic farmer, I'm going to rotate probably quite a bit. Does it mean also livestock or um, is it basically the, the grain and seeds, etc. rotation that I'm, um, I'm going to grow from year, I mean, from year now, but from year four or five, etc. officially organic? Yeah, it's, it, it, it's the grains. So the livestock side is a very interesting, can be a very interesting piece. Uh, we do have some Some of our farmers that are using livestock really as the transitional crop. Yeah, I see a lot of I see a lot of people experimenting yeah. with it. Yeah, so. it's a very interesting concept. We ourselves do not get directly involved in um, the the trade of of meat, milk, or eggs. Um, so we're our concentration is really on those crops that are. Uh, I mean, nothing is completely non-perishable, but we, that that's the market that we try to stay with. There are things that can that can be stored for a long time. They may require some, some special handling and care, but they are not, uh, we do not deal with meat, milk, eggs, produce, fruit, or any of the fresh to table uh, products. And, and on the not, or on the already organic uh, farmers that want to expand and you help them basically getting proper lease agreements on, on other land, um, How does that work? Do they get any? Do they capture at all the value they create by by regenerating that land? Probably going to organic or going beyond organic. Is there? Because I see a lot of I see a lot of opportunity there and a lot of tension at the same time because you're basically helping somebody else's asset yeah. grow. And what, what what do you see in terms of of developments on that side? It's a great question. So we we talk to people across the value chain in agriculture and everybody. Well, unless you're against organic, and there are still plenty of people that are fundamentally against organic, um, you 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 know, from an academic perspective, from an intellectual perspective, understand, of course, that you're building soil health and you're increasing pollinator habitat and biodiversity and improving water quality. But the the valorization of that, all those good things, uh, is still very very immature. And what I mean by that is that the the idea that land would trade for a higher value once it's been converted to organic should be supported by the economics associated with uh, being an organic farmer, which is with, you know in our at least in our part of the world or the parts of the world that we operate in, our farmers make a lot more money per acre than their conventional neighbors. Um, and that should be what drives land value, but there hasn't been enough organic, organically certified land change hands to to positively prove that thesis. So maybe everybody likes to hold on it. Well, and quite frankly, the the sort of the flip side of the same discussion is there are there is concern about uh, you know okay if you're not if you're not doing traditional weed control and if you're not doing traditional fertilization. Maybe you're actually mining my soil, and you're going to give me back a weedy, a weedy patch. Okay, um, 
So there's there's still some tension in that whole proposition about the, being able to you know monetize, valorize the the actual uh, improvement in 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 the soil uh, itself. Uh, that's again intellectually everybody understands it, but but we are just too young uh, in the practice yet to be able to positively affirm the marketplace has not. Come as, for the land anyway has not come along as quickly as the marketplace for the product. And and actually, you touched upon a, a very interesting point as well when you mentioned your the, the three pieces of the toolbox basically you're using. I, I think you highlighted somewhere in one of the documentations a fourth as well, which comes back to this point. And and I'm quoting here: perhaps one of the hardest parts of this journey is to walk into a, a local coffee shop and getting the cold shoulder for doing something different. How do you work on that psychology piece that I'm going to be the, the weird one in the village and yeah. in the community because I'm going organic and going to have a very messy field? That's the hardest part for us to address directly. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're not running a social agency here and we're not running a psychological agency. And you're not running the coffee uh, shop, no. Right. So, I mean, one of the things that we are starting to do again, you know, being a young company, we, we had to sort of do things in a particular order. But one of the things that we're starting to do is to create a community, uh, and connecting all, you know, various farmers to each other, giving them the opportunity to understand that although they may be odd in the local coffee shop, that in the, in the global coffee shop, they're not that odd. And having that, having those connections to other farmers who have been through this journey, and have come out the other side and, and are successful. Uh, that that level of support, um, obviously, we can't force it on people, but we are we're creating those connections, both to help the new farmer uh, from a transitional standpoint. Sometimes the best mentor for them is an existing organic farmer, uh, but also to give them, uh, you know, a, a community that they can interact with, you know, either over the phone or through events. We have, we have a lot of field days, for example, during the summer. We're very actively involved in that right now, where we, where we convene communities of growers that, that uh, some of them know each other, but some of them don't, and giving them a chance to sort of form a peer group, if you will, between themselves uh, in order to, um, you know, establish the fact that they aren't maybe quite as odd as, as some of the local folks might treat them. And, you know, it's very interesting when you find somebody who, who broke ranks a number of years ago and went organic a number of years ago, and now they are successful. Um, all of a sudden, they're not the, the odd one anymore, but they're the, they're the one that's sought after. So there's a period of time, you know, maybe three to five years where you may have this uh, feeling of isolation. Um, but if you are successful, uh, you know, particularly in the farming community, then you become admired. So you, there's a, you have to sort of go through the valley of death. It's like the, the yield drag, it's also your reputation drag. Yeah. yeah, right. I mean, that's what the coffee shop's all about, right? As everybody tells, tells a story about the fishing trip um, in the form of yields, you know, how big, how big things are and how much they sold it for and blah, blah, blah. Never on but, the input side of things. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. No, but you're right. That is a very complicated piece of this. Um, and quite frankly, you know, probably the least discussed, but probably the most, um, you know, the most real barrier when somebody starts 
when a grower starts thinking about going in this direction and he starts socializing the idea with his neighbors and his neighbors all react negatively, um, oftentimes then, then the grower just goes back to what they were doing before and it's, it's easier. Um, and we, yes. we, 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 we can't, we can't, we can't conquer the world. We, we have to find those spots, those bright spots where we can be successful. Yeah, I see a lot of parallels with, with the impact investing space, which is clearly booming, but in many countries, there are only a few that, that actually see their portfolio and their investments and their family office as a potential to, to actually um, be a force for good and actually invest, get return and, and, and not, and be able to sleep at night and not being, having to worry that your, your money is invested in, in certain pipelines that aren't so sustainable. Yeah. But if you are the only one or the first one to start there, mainly your family is very worried they're going to lose a lot of return. Your friends probably say, why don't you buy a boat and go sailing? And and so it's a very lonely field until you discover peer groups, which luckily start to happen in a lot of places because the tools are there to transition the journey to clean up your portfolio, to actually invest it in very deep impact or lighter impact, etc. That's all there. The main question is, do you... Are you able to to do that journey, which might take like an organic three, five, or ten could take quite a long time? But yeah, you need that support group because it's not easy being the the only one walking to the right when everybody's walking to the left. No, that's a, that's a very good parallel uh, example. I I, I I you know fully agree. I, at a personal level, we made the transition several years ago um, to first start taking things out of our portfolio. That's kind of the the first step, right? Um, first step, carbon. I would say, is look at looking what is in it, because most people actually don't know it to the full detail level. If you have outsourced part of it, yeah. Yeah. Well, first, first for us, I mean, at a personal level, is finding finding an advisor, right? Finding an advisor that that knew the journey and that could help us think through and and demonstrate to us, you know, help us figure out what it is we really cared about and what we really wanted to accomplish over what period of time and with what risk return profile and et cetera. So we're to a, to a certain degree, we kind of play that advisory role, you know, in the business that we're in. I mean, I, I don't want to, I don't want to overemphasize that point, but you know, we do, we speak with impact investors all the time. We have, I've been contacted by a long stream of folks that are somewhere on the continuum. Um, you know, but I would say that even our, even our first investor, our initial investor, Although they weren't well organized around an ESG theme, their their LPs. This was a private equity group. Their their LPs were increasingly asking them to analyze their portfolio of, of investments as a GP, um, and and start grading their investment portfolio along uh, certain ESG frameworks. And so we've actually been helping our primary financial sponsor understand what this means at a at an operating company level. And have helped them create their ESG policy, and have uh, you know now they have hired uh, at least one person full time for that endeavor internally. Um, so they they themselves are in transition between what I would consider to be a conventional uh, investment shop and a, a more ESG driven convention shop or um, uh, investment shop. Um, but there are some much more pure impact investment groups. Many times they are in the form of a family office um, who have come to us specifically along those lines. And they understand that we are not ourselves the agricultural producer, but they, when, once they understand the critical link that we're providing that makes it possible 
you know, for these agricultural practices to find a commercial return, and they connect those dots, uh, we become, you know, a very interesting opportunity. So I have those conversations all the time. That's a, that's a, that's an important part of uh, what we think our future is. Yeah, because let's let's dive into that bit a bit. I mean, you've only been around with this company, if you've been around a lot more, but 18 months. Um, what does the rest of, it's now June 2018, what does the rest of 2018 look like? What are, are the main exciting projects you can share, obviously? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it's actually relatively simple. So, you know, we're, we're in the Northern Hemisphere anyway. We're already uh, done planting, essentially. Um, so the, the work that we did prior to planting was to organize as, as many farm-based contracts as we could and to go through a planning process with the organic farmers to help them understand what the opportunities were for the various crops that could be grown in their, in their area. To your point about earlier point about rotation, uh, rotation is a much more important part of the uh, organic um, framework than it is the conventional framework. So you have sort of two different decision horizons. One is an agronomic horizon, i.e., what do I, what should I be doing agronomically in order to optimize not just this year but the next several years in my in my system? And then right alongside that is the economic piece. Okay, what what can I, what will it cost me, or how much can I make? Um, so it's a matrix type decision approach, and we we get to sit with the growers and and do that. So that. That's all done now in the northern hemisphere. We're embarking on that in our South American operations right now for the new for the for the winter season down there. Um, so now it's you know some of a bit of it is uh, is sit and wait because you know the crop is the crops are growing. We're working with customers primarily right now to help arrange their supply chains for for the upcoming harvest. Um, and we're you know because of the assets that we purchased, we're still. We're still doing some basic, uh, you know, capital project work to to improve those assets and, and make them a little bit better than they were necessarily when we bought them. And we're always talking to, you know, people across the value chain about additional acquisitions. Today, so far, that has not meant additional companies that we are buying. It has strictly been assets, but we are certainly in the market for uh, acquisition opportunities. You know, being as young as we are, we're We're still struggling a bit with just some basic internal infrastructure with accounting systems and things like that. So still getting getting that uh, uh, sharpened up um, is important. Our fiscal year ends at the end of June, so um, you know taking stock of, of what mile what what milestones we met or exceeded or missed, and uh, you know doing the doing the planning for for the upcoming year. But you know when you're in agriculture, you If you're in agriculture in a single hemisphere, you really have one one cycle a year, you know. So agriculture is maddeningly slow in the sense that it's not a factory where you can run down and turn a knob every five minutes and, and make adjustments. You have one time a year to get things done, and you have to accept that cadence as a fact. It's a little bit different because we have operations in the north and south hemisphere, so we get to do this twice a year. But nonetheless, there are certain realities that you simply can't change. So you have to, you get into this cadence of, you know, plan, plant, grow, harvest, handle, ship, wash, rinse, and repeat. You know, and that's, that's just the nature of the business. Um, 
so there's not there's no real big exciting projects uh, this year. You know, we've we've got a couple of assets that we're looking at to expand our footprint, um, but our our program development work, particularly on the farm, what we call our farm profit program, which is our farm facing program, uh, goes on year round because you know once we get into post planting, then we start having these these field day events and uh, community building events and things like that. So that's it's it's not mundane by any means, but it's not uh, it's incrementally it's incrementally improving what we've already started. I guess would be the best way to describe it. It's a, it's a good rhythm, and and in terms of what what means regenerative agriculture for for pipeline foods, and what are your plans in that? I mean, you've mentioned organic is a way to express that. And right. Can you can you expand on that a bit? Yeah. So I mean the the the, the term regenerative. In, in the commercial sense is really very new. Now, if you go back to Rodale Institute, uh, you know, many, many years ago, the term was, was being used, but it wasn't being used as a commercial label. And really the power of a market to make change is when you can connect the demand side to the supply side, because the primary exchange is money, right? And without money, your, your, the universe of participants shrinks to only those who are mission driven, which is important, but in, in my mind, not sufficient. So we're trying to figure out how this, how the signals are going to get sent, if you will. Um, and regenerative is a new, is a relatively new signal in the commercial world. We have a regenerative organic, you know, a regenerative organic certificate now that, the, that, some food companies are considering adopting, which is sort of organic plus. Um, the organic community itself is fracturing a little bit from those who, who think that, uh, you know, the current regulatory environment is sufficient and those who think that it falls short of meeting uh, their own personal um, aspirations to be more environmentally friendly, more socially um, responsible and uh, have a higher degree of governance over their business. Uh, but this is this conversation about regenerative as a commercial communication tool uh, upstream and downstream on the value chain is, is still new. Our, our approach at this point is a little bit of a wait and see, not because individually as people, we aren't sympathetic to, um, you know, many of the ideals expressed in, in regenerative, in the regenerative conversation. But again, if, if the market signal does not turn into a, a commercial opportunity, um, we believe that the, that the uh, outcome is going to be too small to be measured. Um, so the commercial signal can come in many different ways. Consumers are, are certainly the preferred mode, but it can also come through the investment community because the investment community has the opportunity to use money again uh, to incentivize uh, certain behaviors, and you can you, you do not even need to have somebody who's mission oriented, uh, you know, to 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 stare at a monetary opportunity. And you know, I've, I've taught I've, I I tell my team at some level we shouldn't care about motivation as long as the outcomes are aligned with our uh, business philosophy and our ethos. So if a person, if a grower, for example, is solely motivated by money. Uh, and that's the way that we can get that grower to behave in a different way that creates an economic opportunity for the grower and an abundance of uh, additional environmental outcomes, we shouldn't care. 
we shouldn't be so altruistic that we that we need for uh, the growers to stand up and salute, you know, some sort of flag or, or some sort of icon. Uh, we we should really care about the outcomes of the endeavor, and so that's sort of where we are in the in the regenerative journey because it, it's still a very new concept commercially. Um, even while we feel, you know, I would say most of us anyway who work here. Uh, feel very strongly personally that the notion of regenerative certainly makes sense, and if 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 the marketplace can at least align with uh, that concept, and you know, not certainly not penalized, but if they can, if there's a reward system uh, associated with it, um, then we stand ready to to use that as another way uh, to create um, good outcomes at, at, at the farm level. Uh, it, it, but it's a, it's a it's a very it's a tricky regenerative is tricky right now because it's it's it is so new. And and do you see? I, I imagine that within your group of farmers you have an, an enormous spectrum. That mm-hmm. some folks have been doing it for a long time and are are maybe pushing the boundaries or are really have, have gone beyond organic quite a while ago. Do you mm-hmm. see them going into? even more complex rotations, adding, I mean, we've discussed livestock a bit, but tree cropping into it, etc. Also doing things that are not part of your ecosystem. And do you see them going beyond, um, beyond organic? You know, in the, in the North American and South American commercial agricultural areas, the answer is no. Um, we do see some of that in areas that we don't necessarily practice in at this point. So at the smallholder level where, Oftentimes, there may be a corporate entity involved that is, um, you know, deeply concerned, for example, about their about their raw material supply of, of cocoa or chocolate or something, you know, something more exotic that's typically not grown in, in a well-developed area. Um, those types of schemes are, uh, I would say, are more advanced than they are in Midwest, U.S., or uh, you know Buenos Aires province in Argentina, for example. Um, so we haven't got that far yet, at least at scale. There's always there's always projects, um, you know, interspersed cropping, uh, y- you know, either multi-species cropping or using permaculture as part of the rotation, experimenting with different water management systems. Um, that's all pretty small-scale stuff at, at the at the commercial level anyway. Um, that doesn't mean that it won't come. I mean, again, the, assuming that the market continues to ask for, the food market continues to ask for um, a higher and higher value proposition and, and it, the market is willing to pay for that value proposition in, in a, or at least support, incentivize um, conversions or extensions, uh, then they'll take hold as they take hold. But again, the challenge in agriculture. The good, the good news, bad news is, you know, the inertia that's built into the one-year cycle uh, means that sometimes you have to get go through an entire generation um, to see real change, and uh, that just it just simply takes time. And and with your history of carbon sequestration, etc., do you measure? that level of detail also with the farms you work with now? I mean, do you do the soil carbon tests, etc., to see, I mean, there's, I don't know if there's a market now in the U.S. for, for those kind of ecosystem services, but is, is that a level of measurement and transparency 
um, you also want to provide to your customers that end up buying the product? Yeah, so just in the last 24 months, so just, a, just prior to us getting started as a company um, and continuing on now with a little bit more velocity, the, the whole soil health discussion has really, particularly in the U.S., I mean, I'm, I'm impressed with how, how much that term is used because it really wasn't being used outside of sort of the NGO activist world uh, until just a couple of years ago. So soil health, and that means a lot of different things, one of which is certainly uh, organic matter, uh, which is often expressed as carbon. Um, microbi- you know, microbial activity is another marker. Um, there's, there are a number of uh, you know, chemical analysis that can be done. And so with soil health being really the topic that's driving that conversation, now getting commercialized by major food companies uh, and major participants in the value chain, out of that conversation now, um, the drive for measurements has, has, started to, has started to take hold. So before, it was really about you know, soil health as a promoter of uh, crop yield, so the, the test that were being done was to see primarily, you know, is, how's my organic matter moving from year to year? So there's a number of micronutrient tests and a number of, uh, you know, some, in some cases around carbon, but not, not so much. But now that it's moved more, the soil, the, the soil health concept has moved more mainstream. Um, the measurements associated with what soil health, you know, how do you, how do you measure soil health? Uh, is becoming more of a commercial aspect of of the business. We still do not have, as far as I know, we still do not have a major uh, food company that has any sort of specifications that they've come out with. But but the ind- the indications are that we're moving in a direction in which, um, again, on a somewhat on a consumer driven basis, that soil health, which includes uh, the carbon component. Um, is going to be something that's that that is those attributes are going to be more sought after in conjunction with the physical supply chain than they have been in the past. Doing those tests is not, you know, it's not uh, you're not breaking any new ground by doing those tests. Those tests we know how to do those tests. It costs money. The question is what what is the motivation for doing those tests? Um, and up until now, it's been mostly around uh, understanding. You know how 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 the practices are are affecting yields, um, but now increasingly it's becoming how are the practices affecting these other environmental outcomes. So if we would have this conversation again in in a year from now, chances are there would be at least a few major companies that have have made some statements around soil and and hopefully actually also translated those statements into concrete questions and and asks from from their suppliers. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. Year over year over year, this this will become more. I hesitate to use the term mandate, but conceptually more of a mandate in in the supply chain. And you know, so this is where we start talking about okay, which technologies are we going to use? How important is blockchain in this whole in this whole world? Um, but before we before we before you go into the technology of how somebody you're going to, to ask it, yeah, somebody needs to ask it, right? You have to have a 
you, you know, what I learned in my software days is you better be able to put it on paper before you start coding it, right? So uh, we're still in that putting it on paper phase in in this market. Um, I have no, this will not, ultimately this will not be a technology problem. The technologies exist already to do a good job of capturing and expressing um, the data, but what is the motivation and, and you know, the crass question always comes up, who's going to pay for it? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. I have discussions here with farmers in in, in Europe and, and some forward-thinking companies are, are starting to ask those questions. Like we've seen carbon sequestration, what does it cost per ton to put it down in, a, in an old gas field? And they start to slowly ask some forward-thinking farmers, what would it cost to store it in, in your soil? And the same discussion is starting to happen around water, like because it's a huge issue in the Netherlands, the, the amount of rain and especially the, the intensity, and there's simply not enough space or not enough money to to make the rivers a bit wider, and and also the so the the, the public um, authorities that are taking care of that system, which obviously is is hugely important because otherwise it would be underwater, are are starting to pay attention. Maybe we can use the water storage cap- capacity of healthy soils. And what would that look like? Very, very early on discussions, but a year from now, there would probably be some pilot somewhere and, and somebody mm-hmm. starts to figure out some of those things. So both water quantity management in, in excess and in drought, right? I mean, we... Yeah, yeah. No, drought is not so much. Uh, in summer, it is actually. You know, both, both of them, plus quality, which you mentioned before, obviously, are, yeah. are all three around water. And then your biodiversity is, is another one, which tends to touch upon consumers a bit more but yeah water on on, on all sides is a is, is a huge opportunity and a huge uh, a huge risk correct in the u.s one of the things that um, has become apparent more apparent now to the rural communities is that their groundwater uh, so in addition take away the surface water discussion and go to groundwater um, many of the rural Community wells that that would be supplying a small town uh, are impaired in terms of water quality, and it, it's there's no secret about what the source of that impairment is. It's clearly uh, agricultural leaching, um, and it doesn't matter until it matters. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, we have we have uh, towns even here in Minnesota where they their their community uh, source of water um, is undrinkable from a safety standpoint. And, you know, this is not due to diseases and pathogens. This is simply due to chemical, uh, chemical pollution. So once that, once that starts to actually impact you, um, and, and, you know, you, you have relatives in town, even though you may still be out on the farm, you realize that uh, some of what you've been told about, uh, you know, these systems being benign and not being uh, risky for the environment may not be quite so true. So there's a there's a whole another level of conversation that that I think will be the ultimate accelerator of conversion. You know, if I could snap my fingers and turn the entire world organic overnight, uh, I do not believe at this point. I wouldn't have said this a few years ago, but I do not believe at this point that I that you would see any decrease in production. And in fact, I would argue that over the long term. This is the only way that things can, can work over the long term. Uh, but you'd see an immediate impact in terms of environmental outcomes. And I think people would be astounded and understand that they've been fed 
a bunch of stories that aren't necessarily true about the need for using uh, synthetic production methods, um, you know, to be able to feed the world. This whole feed the world concept is a red herring. Uh, oh, it's driving me nuts. It's uh, yeah, <laughs> and and I. I th- I think the healthcare aspect on the water, the, I mean, the, the general ecosystem around us, plus the nutrients in your food, the more yeah. comes out of that and the more, I mean, I see some research early on from healthy soil to healthy produce, healthy gut systems, and thus healthy people. There's a very clear link there, which we're now, we, which we always knew, but slowly comes back and we have some scientific research to prove it, uh, which is a huge, I mean, that, that drives many of, of course, you have to do organic in a, in, in a proper way. And we, we are going to see some examples of it not done in a proper way as, as a sort of a, a pushback from the industry to like, look, look, you can never feed the world because he lost 20% of his yield. But there yeah. are always exceptions like that. I think that healthcare and the ecosystem part in general, as we now slowly see, I mean, there's, there's a paper out from Montana on, on the fellow, the summer fellow practice. And what actually impact, if you only do cover crops, what's the impact on the, lo- the local climate and actually to see a drop in temperature in the summer and more moisture in the air, which are two of the main, main dangers of climate change, too mm-hmm. high temperatures and, and not enough moisture and thus drought. So y- you start to hopefully see also, like if I actually change enough farms to organic and beyond organic, we could somehow stabilize or reverse some of the, the huge challenges that, that this climate uh, craziness brings with it. Well, and, that, and that's one of the reasons why we're interested primarily in row crops because it's it's only through the broad acre system that you're going to, you know, and and this is another another interesting point of tension is because you've got the what I'll call the legacy organic um, crowd who are typically uh, farming smaller acreage um, and very intensive you know, uh, maybe 40 different crops on an acre, right? But it's mostly designed for local use. Um, and fruit and vegetables, yeah. And fruits and vegetables, and that's great. And not grain. But yeah. it's great. I mean, it's, it, it, that's the food I want to eat, and I'm glad that, 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 that those programs are up and going, but that is not going to make a, a systemic change uh, on, uh, you know, a local, regional, or certainly global level. You have to get the broad acre you have to get the broad acre involved. So, you know, to us, the only way we get paid ultimately is through our handling and processing and transportation of, of broad acre crops. Uh, but but it's also the only way that we think that that you can actually put a dent in in the current trajectory is through is through broad acre schemes. So, it's not the sexy side of agriculture, but it's we think the most important in terms of making these transformations. Yeah, we'll make we'll make it sexy. <laughs> I'll keep I will keep repeating okay. it. And and just in terms of of pipeline foods whatever you want to share obviously but what size I mean you're 50 plus people um just to give an, an imagination how many hectares are you working with or how many tons or if you want how much money have you raised just to give a bit of an understanding what kind of uh, size you are dealing with. Yeah, so I I mean some of these some of these uh figures are estimates but um in our most recent review of the uh, acreage uh, that we are currently working with, uh, North America, I believe it's 1.4, give or take 1.4 million acres. Um, in Argentina, it's about 150,000 acres. Uh, 
rest of world through our European partnership, which you know we take credit for each other because that's that's the way that we've structured our deal. That's a much harder um, that's a much harder number to get our head around. Uh, you know, we know that for example, we've got we've got a, a sesame project in Uganda that is uh, sixty thousand, give or take, smallholders. Each one of those smallholders has, give or take, about half a hectare. Um, and that's just a single project, but it's, you know, the measuring these things are, are, are tough. I would say. No, no, obviously, but just to have, have a, a grasp of more or less the size and not asking the, the half a hectare or acre um, dimension. In terms, in terms of uh, sales for, for our fiscal year 19, which starts uh, on the 1st of July coming up, um, we, have, we are anticipating uh, sales of a product in the range of 150 to 175 million U.S. dollars. Um, I cannot share with you precisely how much money has been invested in the organization, but um, there's a lot more to go. I mean, we when you when you start with private equity, you understand that that, that you know there's a clock ticking, and the group that we chose, I think we did a very nice job of of de- determining who to work with because when you take on investors now you you've taken on more than just money you've taken on a relationship and uh, there are many there were many investors that would were interested in writing checks for our thesis at the beginning but I, I realized that that the uh, <laughs> the upward management that I would have to deal with um, to work with these folks it's key yeah you know it would be too time consuming so but even our group, you know, they're, they're in the business of uh, growing businesses and then moving on. Yeah, because I was going to ask your, your time frame as you are in agriculture and regenerative and sustainable agriculture takes time. Is this a 10 year? I mean, what, what kind of long term mission focused? How do you lock into that if you take on? even a patient private equity party. Yeah, well, we're so we're already now discussing, we've got some very specific investments that are appealing to very specific pools of capital with a, with a mission orientation, with an impact orientation. Um, I would guess that within the next 12 months, we will already start accepting um, limited investments from those groups, already starting to build a path towards uh, what I'd call the next. I mean, like specific vehicles, yes, etc., to put money to work. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's there's already this sense of look at ultimately, uh, you know, the ownership of this business from a financial standpoint should be in the hands of those who have an evergreen view uh, and and want to perpetuate and are interested in in the very long term. So, but but many of those are. Are risk adverse. I mean, as you know, in the in the impact space, there the challenge of, of the quality of the investment opportunity uh, or the maturity of the investment opportunity is is are two of the key the key uh, issues in the impact in the impact space, and so and it's no different in agriculture than it is in other other components. So now that we have a little bit of time under our belt and we can demonstrate that we are making progress towards uh, you know towards some of the milestones that we set out. Uh, and initially advertised some of the initial conversations we had with impact investors who aren't necessarily as financially sophisticated, um, but are much more sophisticated in other in other means. 
and therefore need a, a little bit more maturity of the platform into which they're investing, we are now reconvening with those folks. And uh, I do expect in the next 12 months that we will have additional investment into this organization from uh, impact investment uh, institutions, whether it's, again, family office or in some cases we're, you know, we're talking to some foundations. With a specific long-term view and, and then might at some point the private equity group needs to move on and that's then possible. Yeah, and I see that a lot. I mean, you really need to stage it and, and find the right capital for the right moment. But then, yeah, how do you structure it in a way that the mission is locked in, but you can still raise capital? I mean, those are, are a few juggling balls to, to play with. Just to finalize, because I want to I wanna be conscious of your time as well. If you would be, I mean, imagine there's a, there's a room full of very smart impact investors listening to, to this podcast who are ready to move into soil. They, they've read the books. They, they've been to Rodale. They're, they're ready. What would be your, I mean, without giving investment advice, what would be your path, your, your advice to, to look out for um, and to, to, to orientate and basically to, to get started? That's a, that's a tough one to come up with a spot answer. So the, so, you know, I obviously have a bias. I think that, you know, one of the things. This sounds like I'm pitching, pitching pipeline. But one of the things I think that's a, that's a, uh, you too, you you went through that process and started pipeline. So there's a very, I mean, that that's what you obviously thought after you could have retired. It's very hard for any investment community to participate in agriculture in the space in which we're in. And I don't mean. I don't mean even the sustainability space. I'm talking about the midstream asset-based commodity space because most of the large-scale projects, you know, if you have a man, if your mandate is that you can't do it, you can't write a check for under $20 million, let's say, um, just as a number, it's very, very hard for you to find something that to invest in, in, in assets in agriculture. You can buy businesses, you can you can certainly buy land, uh, but the midstream piece is very tough to get access to because there's a whole bunch of really really tiny projects that would be too small, and then all the big stuff is owned by the big guys, and they don't need your money, right? So Cargill's not looking for impact investors or any investors, frankly, to come alongside. They have a bank, right? So we represent, and I had to learn this during the fundraising process. I, I, I learned how to present ourselves as an aggregating platform of a bunch of relatively small individual components that in total represent the opportunity to take a relatively large check and put it to work. And we, we deal with all the paper cuts associated with, you know, the smallness of the individual pieces. Um, so in, in the impact space where a lot of things are still being tried and, and may, may not be proven, uh, you know, to be commercially successful, um, the uh, you know what you're looking for clearly, this is true everywhere. Is you're looking for a strong management team, um, but the ability to to pivot uh, during the inevitable uh, curves in the road, particularly in the early years of an organization, uh, is is critical in the impact investment space, and even and even more so the diversity of the management team in terms of their backgrounds. Um, so that they can think about things in a more holistic sense 
is critical. We have people from the airline industry. We have people from the processing industry. We have people from traditional agriculture. We have people from, you know, the financial industry. We've got this, this wonderful, uh, you know, melange of, of, uh, skill sets. So our conversations can really span pretty much across the spectrum of what you might not usually think about in business, but are, can be much more important when you're dealing with trying to create a new paradigm. And I, I, that, I know that that is, that sounds all very wonderful, uh, quite ambiguous. Um, that's why I don't give investment advice. Um, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, the quality of the management team and their experience in some aspect of, of execution prior to uh, whatever it is you're considering investing in is critical. I think it's an excellent point to look at. I mean, from from our, our conversation before, looking at scale, what, what do you want to achieve? Impact is great, but if you're looking at small scale organic farms of a few acres, but you want to actually, actually change local climate, you need to look at, at many, many, many. And, and then looking at an experienced management team to, to, to actually change, uh, to get a new paradigm. And probably, I mean, I would add long-term view because this is a generation and generations work. So it's uh, unless you're in it for the long run, probably agriculture in general is not a good idea. But I would, I would absolutely agree with that. You know, one of the things, I mean, again, selfishly, what we would love to see is we would love to see a, a pool of capital that has somehow been formed that is expressly intended to be used to help, uh, you know, the conversion process. And, uh, and I would suggest that it can be an evergreen pool that, get, that regenerates itself. So another form of regenerative. So it's not one-time capital. Uh, and the way that it regenerates itself is it participates in those out years in terms of the profitability. Um, you know, we, I toyed with, a, with a, you know, the con- a concept that's essentially a green bond concept. Um, until I realized that, you know, it's to put money together in a green bond at scale, then I have to put the money to work right away. And, and yeah, we're not quite there yet. Um, but they're coming, they're coming. I'm, I'm talking to some people. I hope to have an interview up for a climate bond actually in, in India that's taking, I have to say the numbers, right? I think about 8 million smallholder farmers to beyond organic, as they call it, natural budget farming. And, and there's a region that takes on that challenge and, and they are probably going to raise 2.3 billion f- through BNP Paribas for that climate bond. Of course, it's a state government doing it, et cetera, et cetera. But it shows that we're, we're moving in a direction where serious capital, hopefully if that one is successful, still takes probably a year. But we're moving into the direction of, of serious capital, which is quite exciting. Yeah, no, I, I, I fully agree. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm envious that that can be put together uh, in a place like India, and yet we seem to struggle to put that together, to put even a small-scale version of that together in some place like the USA. Um, you know, investment in in soil health. I mean, you can you can create a a whole wheel of fortune, if you will, with lots of slivers of of benefits, um, all coming from essentially the same thing. You know, and and so the if you can pool capital and that capital can be put to work to help sponsor the initiation, because our biggest problem in the U.S. is we do not have enough acres that are organic to support our domestic demand. So we're, we're importing. Now, granted, we're always going to import things we can't grow here, but we import 75% of our organic corn and soybeans. 
right? And and let alone whether that whether those imports are are you know truly organic or not. That's a whole different discussion. But the but the point is, we are the king of soybeans and corn, and yet we're importing organic soybeans and organic corn because we don't grow enough here. Um, so one of the ways to accelerate that that conversion is to have sympathetic capital uh, available that's not looking to make a one-time investment for a one-time return, but is looking to perpetually spin that wheel. Transition finance. Yeah. Transition financing, and and so we have we've had several people, and they're still investigating this. You know, putting together essentially a, a soil health bond or a organic conversion bond. You know, so at some level, the, the name may or may not be important, but the, but the whole concept is no. The, the name is important piece. because it, it it signals a lot of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's an app. I'll hold up my hand and say we'd be more than willing to to uh, to work with uh, investors who are interested in that. And our job in that would be to to get the acres up and going. Our job in that would be to commercialize the product. Our job in that would be to bring other other support systems to bear to uh, ensure success, to identify the, the farmers that are most likely to succeed. Um, if, if I had a, you know, again, starting with a small pool of capital, uh, I think we could, we, could make, we could make this engine race a lot faster. That's very exciting. I think we need another hour to discuss <laughs> fund vehicles and investment More than happy. machines and programs, etc. <laughs> but I want to be conscious of your time, Eric, and, and I want to thank you for now and, and uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to explain and share your, your journey and uh, the very exciting future that lies ahead. Okay. Thank you, King. Appreciate it. You just listened to an interview with Eric Jackson. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Lots to cover, but so much more to dive into. I definitely plan to check in with him again and see what happened to the regenerative agriculture movement on big acres and row crops. Thank you for making the time to listen to this podcast and making it all the way till the end. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you found the Investing in Regenerative Agriculture and Food podcast valuable, there are a few simple ways you can use to support it. Number one, rate and review the podcast on your podcast app. That's the best way for other listeners to find the podcast, and it only takes a few seconds. Number two, share this podcast on social media or email it to your friends and colleagues. Number three, if this podcast has been of value to you, and if you have the means, please join my Patreon community to help grow this platform and allow me to take it further. You can find all the details on patreon.com slash regenerative agriculture or in the description below. Thank you so much and see you at the next podcast.